Hi, my name is Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 will be beginning in verse 1. Man, it's so great to see you guys today. Um, I, I, I'm noticing as I stood at the door over there, it's one of those times that I get a real good look at everybody as they're standing up, and I'm noticing that people are coming back to church, and we've got guests among us today, and we're grateful for all those things. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we sure are. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing some of our choir members rejoin choir. Tom, amen. Amen. And uh, so if you're sitting out there, um, it's, it's time. We'd love to have you back. So Luke chapter 17, verse 1 to 10. Today we're going to talk about uh, the four attitudes of a disciple of Jesus. Four attitudes of a disciple of Jesus. So that's where we're going today, out of Luke chapter 17. And if you would, to honor the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me and let me read this passage over us today. It should be on the screens. There's also a Black Pew Bible in the, in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take one. Take that Black Pew Bible. Take it home with you. Use it. Read it. All right. Luke 17, verses 1. And following says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. If you don't leave encouraged after that verse, I don't know what will, right? Jesus has a way with words. Verse 3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father God, teach us. Father, as I, as I come and I think about our people this morning, I just I think about people who aren't with us today. Father, people who might be watching online, people who are struggling, people who, with, who are struggling with sickness and cancer and 
people who are struggling with dementia. And I, I just want to lift them to you. I pray for them. Not only for them, but also for their spouses or loved ones who are caring for them. Father, there are a lot of people bearing heavy burdens. And I'm so thankful that in your word, it says that we can bring your burdens, our burdens to you. And we can lay them at your feet. Father, your Bible even says, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. And Father, I know that there are people in this room who need rest from the burden that we're carrying. I know that there are people in this uh, who are watching online, some of our own church folks watching online, who are bearing burdens too great for their shoulders. Father, I'm so thankful for the one who came to bear the burden of sin on his shoulders. And your Bible even says in Romans chapter 8 that the one who gave himself for us, well, is he going to withhold anything else from us? And God, I'm just, I'm comforted by those words that Jesus said in, in uh, the Gospels. He said, hey, in this world you're going to have tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We rejoice in that. Father, as people who are burdened, as people who are hurting, as people who need you, we call out to you. We also ask this morning that as we stand before you, that you would see our hearts, you would teach our hearts, you would change our hearts, and you'd make us look more like Jesus. Father, your Bible says in Psalm 119, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. Do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Four attitudes of a disciple. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I've never preached this passage before. Uh, this is a new one to me. And this is one of those passages that if I were to come to on a normal day, uh, and if I weren't preaching through the book of Luke, this is one of those passages I'd probably skip because it's weird, okay? Um, but I'm so thankful for preaching through books of the Bible because they make us address things that we naturally wouldn't address. They say things to us that we naturally wouldn't want to hear. And so here today, we've got four attitudes of a disciple. But before we get there, I want you to recognize or understand something. That every one of these attitudes and each one of these parables that Jesus gives is only understood in light of a community of believers, a community of people. So listen to me, church family. Christianity is not a private experience or enterprise. It's only lived out. Christianity can only be lived out in connection with other people. In connection with other people. Specifically, in connection to the family of God. That's why Jesus says, hey, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, you hear the, that's, I mean, that's like this, this, those are my little ones. This familial, fatherly language that Jesus uses, they belong to me and don't mess with my little ones. You can hear it there. It even says, if your brother sins against you. So you see this family idea. Have you noticed that in America, everything's been individualized? Everything has. It's not about what's good for our nation anymore. It's really become what's good for me. And if what's good for me affects you, who cares? And, and I just want you to understand that's not exactly scriptural. Uh, and, and so we often would look at our, our culture and say a lot of the controversial topics in our culture today revolve around what's good for me is good for me and I don't care how it affects you. Things like homosexuality. 
This transgender idea. Abortion. In, in Scripture, these are sinful. These are spoken against. But when we think about them in light of our culture, we say, hey, that's me. You can't tell me what's good for me. But I want you to understand that sometimes that attitude of individual infiltrates in the church. And we think about church in light of me. And really, church is only about my individual experience. And any time where we stop thinking about the church as the family of God or the people of God, when we think about church in an individual manner, I stop thinking about the church in a Christian way. And so today, I want you to know that we want sometimes the benefits of the family of God without the responsibility of the family of God, but Jesus is going to say a disciple knows better than that. Whenever a people fails to consider how my actions, my individual actions, affect a, a greater group of people, we have stopped thinking like Christians. And Jesus today is challenging our individual attitudes in that light. Okay? So there's four attitudes. Are you with me, church? The first one is care in teaching. Care in teaching. I want you to see what it says. Verse 1, he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Now here, understand a few things. He says, temptations to sin. Um, some other versions might, be say, might say offenses. Does anybody say offenses? The Greek word there is scandalon. We get our English word scandal from it. And he says, literally, he would say, woe to the one who scandalizes a little one. That word scandalon is the idea of luring someone into a trap. It was literally the word for the stick of bait at the back of the trap that would lure an animal into the trap to get caught by the trap. How many of you have ever tried to catch squirrels in a trap? Amen. Or squirrels, possums, raccoons, whatever it is. You put bait at the back and you were trying to lure that animal into the back of the trap using a scandalon, a bait stick, spoon of peanut butter. That would lure me in right there. You put an Oreo in the back of the trap, I'm getting in. And anyways, that scandalon, this bait stick, is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's, he's talking to these Pharisees, and in the context of the passage, Jesus just condemned the Pharisees, who were teachers of God's law, because they had been justifying themselves, and, and they've been trying to explain away parts of the law, God's commandment, that didn't line up with the way that they wanted to live. And so if I just explain it away, then I don't have to worry about it. And not only were they justifying themselves, but as teachers of God's law, they're teaching others to do the same thing. Are you with me? And so, Jesus says, woe to the one through whom the temptation, the scandal on the bait stick that lures him into the trap would come. Woe to the one who, through whom they would come. And he says it'd be better if a millstone was hung around his neck. Now, in 
the Jewish world, there were millstones used all the time for grinding. There was an upper millstone and a lower millstone. The upper millstone could have been anywhere from 15 pounds, up, upwards of 150 pounds or 200 pounds, depending on how big the mill was. And that lower millstone could have been upwards of 1,300 to 1,500 pounds. And so I want you to understand what Jesus is saying. I mean, Jesus' warning is almost mafia-like. Like, I'm going to fit you with a set of concrete galoshes. Have you ever heard that? It'd be better, in Jesus' words, for a mafia-style death to come toward you than to scandalize or to cause one of these little ones to stumble into sin. Whoa. He's saying this is, a, this is a picture of severe judgment. A picture of severe judgment. And he says, essentially, hey, the judgment coming for false teachers is great. Teachers that would... It would cause a little one to stray. Teachers that would put a stumbling block in the way of one of these little ones who causes them to veer away from the path of following God, of loving God, of obeying God, of trusting in Jesus. He says, it'd be better if a millstone were tied around his neck than I, what I got coming for him at judgment. That's a strong word, isn't it? That is a warning. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 15, Jesus says this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's on the screen here. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. How do you do that? You make, you make it so hard for them to enter in. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Being careful to teach the children of God correctly is a necessary attitude of a disciple of Jesus. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says it this way, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Do you see how important teaching is to Jesus? Now, oftentimes we think about this idea of scandalizing somebody or putting a stumbling block in front of somebody. We think about it only in light of a classroom or a pulpit. But I want you to understand something. There's so much more. There's so much more. The punishment is so severe because the soul of the child of God is at stake. Each one of us is teaching with words and actions. Each one of us is teaching. And in our teaching, eternity hangs in the balance of our teaching. He says, be careful. Pay, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves, is what he says. So what does it look like? Now, I want you to understand something. People in Israel never tripped over millstones. You want to know why they never tripped over millstones? Because they were 1,300 pounds. You couldn't miss a millstone. But you did sometimes trip over stumbling blocks. You tripped over the little stuff. How many of you have ever been hiking and hurt yourself? Tripped over something. I'm not calling names, but your laughter might just have called you out, right? You have fallen over something. It's never a boulder. It's always a little root sticking up a half an inch out of the trail, isn't it? 
You fall over those things, don't you? And the same is true in our Christian life. I, I need you to understand that a child of God, if you were to say, well, Jesus isn't the Christ, He's not the Savior of the world, well, a child of God's going to go, that's foolishness. That's crazy talk. A child of God, when you say, well, that's not sin. No, it is sin. The Bible says so. See, they don't, they don't stumble over millstones, but they do stumble over stumbling blocks. Little rocks in the path. And you know, sometimes well-intended people, just like you and I, we can put little traps in the paths of people trying to come to Jesus. Well, if you want to get saved, you've got to stop doing that before you can get saved. You've got to start doing this. You've got to dress this way. You need to clean up your act before you come to Jesus. One of my brothers, Sean Carroll, one time he went to a church, and a leader in the church saw him coming. He had tattoos on his arms. And Sean might or might not have had a few drinks before he got there. And he smelled the alcohol on him. And, and this leader in a church said to him, Our church doesn't welcome people like you. I'm, I'm really glad that God led Sean to Seneca Baptist, where he met Jesus. And you talked to Sean. And you're going to love Jesus more after you talk to Sean. Sometimes people in the church are, we're more known for what we're against than what we're for. And, and, and there's got to be a place for being against certain things. But do you know, more than I'm against your sin, I'm for you trusting Jesus. I'm, I'm for all of the things that Jesus can accomplish in each one of our lives. I'm for the freedom that Christ offers. I'm for the forgiveness that Christ is extending. I'm for God's grace being experienced by you in your life. I am for all the righteousness that you can experience through Christ who is our righteousness. I'm for the eternity that you can have with God in heaven. I am for all of those things more than I'm against your sin. But I am against your sin. I'm against mine too. But you know, if the only thing that people know about Christians is they're a bunch of angry, critical, judgmental people, and they think that way because we've led them to believe that way, then guess what? Sometimes we can be a stumbling block that keeps people from coming to Jesus. Do you know, James and John the disciples of Jesus, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. James and John sometimes missed the point. They were walking through a, a village one time and the village didn't receive them. And James and John looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire from heaven down that it would consume this village? Don't you think that G James and John missed the point that day? Sometimes we miss the point. Jesus said, of course I don't want you to do that. I want them to be saved. We can miss the heart of God sometimes. And we can cause little stumbling blocks that keep people out of the kingdom. 
And I want you to be aware of when somebody comes in our church, when you meet somebody on the street, God's giving you an opportunity to pour into them Jesus. When somebody comes into our church, I don't know what they've experienced. I don't know their day, their week. I don't know the burden they're carrying. And I can either, we can either build them up and draw them to Jesus, or we can put up little stumbling blocks that they're going to fall over on the path and they'll never come to Christ. But I want to be a church of filled with people who have a heart for Jesus and we want people to come to Jesus. Listen, when, when sinners come to Jesus, Jesus will take care of their sin. We want people to come to Christ. And I don't want to be a stumbling block in the way of it. And it's really easy to be. He's warning them. Hey, don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause the offense. Don't be the the one who scandalizes one of these little ones to keep them out of the kingdom. Don't be that because there's a judgment coming for that. The second thing that I want you to hear today is the second attitude of a disciple of Jesus is the attitude of forgiveness. All right, so we know that error is going to come in our lives. Amen. We know I know that uh, by the end of the day I'm going to I'm going to offend somebody, uh, specifically probably my family. I'm going to say something that I shouldn't say. I'm going to be mean when I shouldn't be mean. I, when I should be gracious. I'm going to be a turkey. I'm going to be a knucklehead at some point in time. I'm going to do something by the end of the day that needs forgiveness. And and you and I fall in that category. And Jesus is saying, listen, if there is a, a high probability of error in somebody's life, that means that we need to be prepared to grant forgiveness to other people. It's what disciples of Jesus do. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, now let's look at the first phrase. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Let me just be honest. The, The church has forgotten the beauty of a loving rebuke given from a a loving heart with a desire to see that person restored and to reconcile an erring family member. We've forgotten the beauty of a loving rebuke. Have you been reading Proverbs with me? A bunch of us are reading through the the, uh, wisdom literature. And so we've been reading through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and over and over and over it talks about that the rebuke of a wise man That an open rebuke is better than hidden love. We've forgotten the beauty of a loving rebuke. And I think we've forgotten it for two reasons. One is, I I don't want to offend somebody. We, We don't rebuke people sometimes that we love and we want to see reconciled because I don't want to offend you. And if I tell you that you're doing something wrong, I might offend you. Now that's not the goal of a loving rebuke is to offend. But oftentimes, the fear of offending somebody will keep us from doing what we know we ought to do. I think the second reason that we don't do this well 
I'm going to leave that one alone for now. Now it's called the Holy Spirit of self-control. Now, let me, if God's word says, if, if someone sins against you, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. That does not mean that you get to be a part of the righteousness squad, right? You're like the KGB of keeping people in line. It's not what that means. You don't have the responsibility of going around pointing out the sins or faults of every other person around us. And it doesn't mean telling others about the sins of my brothers in the form of prayer requests. Lots of gossips happened in prayer meetings. There, I, one thing I've noticed, I've said this before from the pulpit, but one thing I've noticed in, since the pandemic has, has come upon us, since the election in 2020, Maybe even just before that. But I, I've just noticed a critical spirit in our country. That it, it seems like we feel like now we have this opportunity and right to voice our, criti our criticisms publicly. Have you noticed that? It just seems really easy to do, whether it's a political leader, this group over here, that group over there. We, we feel like we have the right to air our grievances about everything, and, and we just tend to do it publicly. And I, I want you to understand that that, that has happened. Not just to those sinners outside the church, but those sinners inside the church who've been saved by grace. I have noticed in churches in general and even at Seneca Baptist an occasional critical spirit. People feel like they have the right or responsibility to point out flaws in other people. It's, there's not a whole lot of love attached to it. But Jesus says that's not the heart. It's not the heart. The motivation is restoration. It says if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Forgive him. That is the point. From the very beginning of Scripture, the Bible reveals that sin causes divisions. Sin separates. Sin separated man from God in the garden. Sin, the, one of the curses of sin was God said to Eve, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband. So men and women, husbands and wives, that's where that came from. Chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And then wickedness just continues. Sin separates, and that's not God's desire. 
from the very beginning, God's desire is to reconcile the sinner to the one who has been offended. And ultimately, the one who has been offended is God. The one who has been sinned against or rebelled against or harmed in the sin is God. And God is out to reconcile the entire world to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's also out to reconcile when a brother and a sister or two brothers or family members or whoever, when they are at one another, when they've sinned against one another. God is out for the restoration. See, the motivation is restoration. Galatians chapter 6, 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Oh, does that, Ryan, does that give me the right to just go around when you sin? I get to say, hey, you sin, and hey, you sin, and hey, you sin. Let's just be real. Can we just be real for a second? If that were to be the case, what a horrible place this would be. Right? It's not the case. It's not what he's saying. Because we're going to sin today. I think what Jesus is intending is Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go to him in private. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. Verse 15 says, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've won him. That's that's the goal. Then it says in verse 16, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two brothers along with you that the charge of that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And still, if he doesn't listen to you, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, Jesus' heart isn't to treat somebody as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus' heart is to restore a wayward family member. I love... Hmm. I've got a few brothers. A couple of them sitting in this room who have rebuked me in a loving manner. And can I just tell you how thankful I am? As much as I didn't like it. As much as I I didn't want to be wrong. I'm so thankful for people who love me enough to say, Pastor, I, I saw sin in your life. And... And before you begin walking down that road, I I want to ask you to come back. Isn't that loving? We don't do that well. We don't do that well. See, he says, rebuke him. And then if he turns to you, listen, verse 4 or verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. So here's the question. Before you go rebuking people, you've got to ask yourself a question. If I point out their sin and they quickly acknowledge their sin, am I willing to just as quickly forgive them of their sin? If the answer to that is no, we have no business in rebuking somebody. 
What if, they, what if I rebuke them for their sin? They've sinned against me. I see their sin, and I rebuke them for it. And what if they turn and say, Brother, sister, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. In that moment, am I willing to grant forgiveness to them that's true and heartfelt? If not, I don't have the business to go about rebuking anybody. Well, pastor, you don't know what they've done. You don't know what they've done to hurt me. I, I just remember what Jesus said on the cross as he's being tortured and hung, mocked, spit upon. After all that he just went through, Jesus looks on the very people that are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't, they don't know what they're doing, Lord. Don't hold it against them. This is one disciple caring for another disciple. In other words, I love you enough as a family member to rebuke you for your sin and enough as a family member to forgive it no matter how much your sin has hurt me. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? Well, how many times? Because I say, you know, fool me once, right? Shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Third strike, you're out, buster. How many times? Well, he answers. If he sins against you seven times in the day, in the day. If he sins against you seven times in the day and he turns Seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. There's a condition in this. The condition of forgiveness is when the rebuke takes place that repentance follows. Repentance is an important part of being reconciled to anyone. Specifically, being reconciled to God. The Bible teaches us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we were ungodly enemies who have rebelled against the Holy One of Israel. We have rebelled against Him and our sin has separated us from Him. That we, we were not just indifferent to God, but we were hostile toward God, is what the Scriptures say. And the Bible teaches us that if we want to receive forgiveness from our hostility, our enmity with God, the way to receive that forgiveness is repentance. The negative part of repentance is that I let go of sin, that I acknowledge that sin is sin and that it has hurt people, and then I grab hold of the grace of God shown through Jesus Christ on the cross, and I receive forgiveness. See, repentance is necessary for us to be reconciled to God. For Repentance is necessary for us to be reconciled to one another. It's necessary. But it's, it might be the part of it that we don't like. It, admitting that I'm wrong? I'd rather get a shot in the eye than admit that I'm wrong. You rebuke me, I'm going to punch you in your nose. That's what I'm going to do. They're not going to be repentant. No. Jesus says, no, if, if he 
sins against you, you rebuke him. And he, if he turns to you in repentance, forgive him. He says you must forgive him. Understand, unrepentant, an unrepentant heart leads to a hard heart. It's like working out in the yard. What's going to happen as the summer progresses? You're working out in the yard, you're raking, you're pulling weeds, you're mowing the grass, your, your hands are likely to get more calloused and insensitive to the pain that, of the work. And when we are unrepentant before God and others, guess what? Our heart will experience the same calluses that our hands do from work. And an unrepentant heart is a hard heart, and a hard heart is going to be a heart that can't experience the salvation of God. You can't have salvation apart from repentance. But on the flip side, an unforgiving heart leads to bitterness in my life. I've shared this before, but having unforgiveness in your life, listen to me, church family, I need you to hear me well. I don't know what's happened to you in your life, but you bearing the burden of unforgiveness is like you drinking poison and hoping that the person that has sinned against you dies. You will be the one that suffers, not them. So forgive, not just for their sake, but for yours also. And I'm going to stop in just a second, and we'll get to two more next week. You say, man, that seems hard. <laughs> I, I just don't know how I can forgive somebody. I've, I've never had the courage to call somebody out on their sin because I didn't want them to hate me or be angry at me. I've never had the courage to follow through with Matthew chapter 18. I don't, I don't have the ability, Ryan, to forgive somebody. I hold grudges. I'm good at it. Seems hard. This whole rebuke, repent, and forgive thing. I want you to just understand that if that's where you find yourself today, you find yourself in good company because the disciples right there in verse 5 said, the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. If that sounds hard to you, guess what? It was hard for them. If that sounds impossible for you to do on your own, guess what it is? And that's why we need God's help. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans chapter 8 says, Without the Holy Spirit indwelling us, it's impossible to please God. And guess what, church family? If we want to have these attitudes of a disciple, if we want to be able to forgive, rebuke and repent and forgive wherever you find yourself in that equation if we want the ability to do that we're going to need the holy spirit giving us a measure of faith that's put into action we can't do it without our without god's help and if we're going to really care for the souls of lost men and women 
and in teaching and action that we wouldn't put a stumbling block in their way, then we need faith. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. As I close today, I want to ask this question. Is there anybody in this room, between you and the Lord, I think the first glaring thing that we need to realize is if if you have not ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you realize that you've sinned, and you've sinned against Him, and you realize that you can't earn your way into heaven, and today you want to be saved. I want you to understand that God has given salvation for you. It is a gift of His grace. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2 verse 8 says, it is by grace that we're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not of your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Today, if you want to be saved from sin, I want to encourage you, repent of your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there are some of you here, and you need to make that step. And you say, I don't have enough courage. Pray right now, increase my faith. Help me to do what I don't think I can do. Some of us, we need to have courage in loving our brothers and sisters better. Being willing to rebuke, or being willing, if I'm the offender, to repent. And then being willing to offer forgiveness, or to receive forgiveness from somebody else, humbly. That uh, doesn't sound easy, just pray. Lord, increase my faith. Today, you have an opportunity to trust in Jesus and to get right with brothers and sisters. Now, some of you, if you're a guest with us today, you might be thinking, man, is this church just full of bitterness and anger and frustration? The answer is no. If you come here and you you get plugged in, you'll actually find out this is a pretty loving people. But I just want to be faithful to God's Word and to preach it. And I'd rather warn you ahead of time than warn you afterward. We want to be a healthy church more than we want to be just a big church. And to be healthy means we need to do things right. So, if God's leading you to respond, I want you to do that today. Would you stand with me? Maybe you're in a place in your life where there's a lot of forgiveness that you need to grant. Something, a, a piece of baggage that you've been carrying around for years that has crippled you. There, there is an altar here that you can find a place to meet with the Lord and ask God to start you on that journey to forgive somebody who's hurt you. And maybe you need Jesus. You need to be saved. I'd love to speak with you. But as we sing, you have the opportunity to move.
Father God, pray with me. Father God, speak to us. Teach us and lead us. Show us what you want us to do. How to respond in a way that honors you and obeys you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.